This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. And I'm Sophie Bushwick. Over the past year, or basically ever since ChatGPT came out, artificial intelligence, AI, has crept into so many different corners of society, especially medicine. Yeah, while people have been fearful of what nefarious uses could befall AI, I have been fascinated about new studies showing the benefits of AI in medicine, like being better at reading mammograms than radiologists, mm-hmm. how AI can predict and diagnose diseases by analyzing analyzing the retina. Wow. And we're going to talk about that. There's even research showing that AI chatbots might be helpful in making diagnoses of rare disorders, people using them themselves, and ones that are even missed by doctors. But of course, none of this comes without trade-offs about security, privacy, cost, and the potential for AI to make medical mistakes. Yes, that's of course. That, that's, and our next guest has been following the future of uh, AI very closely. Welcome back, Dr. Eric Topol, a cardiologist and founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, professor of molecular medicine and executive vice president of Scripps Research based in La Jolla, California. Dr. Topol, welcome back to Science Friday. Oh, thanks so much, Ira. Great to be with you again. Nice to have you back. And I want to tell our listeners, we want to hear from you. What questions do you have about how AI can be used in medicine? Maybe you work in the healthcare industry. Are the uses for AI that you're looking forward to for using in the future? Uses for AI also, does it worry you? Our number 844-724-8255, that's 844-SCI-TALK, or tweet us at SciFry. Let's, uh, let's go right into this, Dr. Tobel. Um, I'd like to start with what we know about using AI to read x-rays or MRIs. How effective is AI versus an experienced radiologist? Well, right, Sylvie, that has been several years of accruing throughout all the types of scans, whether it's x-rays, MRIs, um, you name it, um, you know, the CT scans, that when you take tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of these images and you use what's so-called supervised learning, where you have experts with ground truth, so what they show, you can train the model, the AI model, these are so-called unimodal because it's just images, to be as good or better than expert physicians, radiologists, also pathologists, and across the board. So this has been the one area that's been firmed up over the years is superior image interpretation, you know, at least as good, if not better, than uh, clinicians. That is, that's incredible. And speaking of incredible, I was incredibly intrigued by a TED talk that you gave recently in which you talked about how AI can detect and even the even predict the onset of different di- diseases by analyzing the retina. Wow, how does that work? Yeah, this is really striking. And so as opposed to what we were just talking about, interpreting the image with machine eyes, what wasn't predicted, Ira, was that machines could see things that we'll never see. And so with the retina is probably the prototypic example. Who would have thought that by having uh, an AI look at the retina, you could predict Parkinson's disease five to seven years before it appears, any symptoms, Alzheimer's disease, kidney disease, uh, heart and stroke risk, uh, the hepatobiliary disease, 
the, the control of diabetes, control of blood pressure, all these things from a retinal uh, picture. It, it's pretty darn striking. That sounds amazing, but can you explain how it works? Uh, what, what is the AI seeing <laughs> that we humans can't? Right. Uh, that's the key, Sylvia, is that we don't have full explainability for this capability, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, extends to other things like the electrocardiogram or chest x-rays or so many of these images. We have had some work to try to get to explaining the features that the machine eyes pick up, these so-called saliency maps, uh, and also recent work so-called counterfactuals, but we still have a ways to go to fully explain the power of machine eyes, which are almost, you could use our imagination of what you could think they could do in the years ahead. And could there be other diseases in the retina that we, you know, using the retina that we don't know about? Oh, sure. I mean, I think we might have thought, of course, that the retina, because it's brain tissue, would give us insight about neurodegenerative diseases. But you're absolutely right. There's there's probably a lot more they're going to pick up. This is just at the moment scratching the surface uh, of, of where this is headed. Hmm. It, someday we'll likely be doing self um, imaging of our retina for checkups through our smartphone. Wow. Oh, well, wow. One of the places where AI is currently being used is mammography. There was a piece in KFF News last week about how patients are charged an additional 40 bucks for an AI reading of their mammogram. I mean, this raises some big questions of inequity, right? Absolutely. I think this is unconscionable. We're not at a stage that patients should be charged for AI. You know, we're, we're kind of in the research mode with little implementation. If this is a front runner for where we're headed, where we're going to shunt the costs of getting these systems uh, in, in clinics, to patients, that would be horrible. And as you say, that is going to worsen inequities. Hmm. And I mean, other than this particular case, radiologists are still the ones interpreting our scans, not hmm. AI. But what do you think it would take for AI to be used regularly for this? Yeah, I think what we want to have is compelling evidence. So, for example, you know, in Sweden, they had an 80,000 uh, women were randomized to having their mam- mammograms read by the uh, radiologist and the AI compared to just the radiologist. And it showed marked superiority for accuracy at uh, a a considerable savings of time. So that system, interestingly, uh, would be suitable. It has the kind of compelling evidence, uh, not generally used in in many places here in the U.S., but it's the kind of uh, data that we don't have across many of the other types of medical imaging mm. that's done. Mm. Lots of people, of course, the phones are lighting up about this topic. <laughs> Let's see if we can get a few in. Let's go to Jeff in Chicago. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for taking my call. Hi, go ahead. Well, uh, I've been struggling with insomnia for many, many years, and uh, I go to, you know, like uh, acupuncture. He'll go, well, there's many, many reasons for insomnia. And I'd like to know if AI could uh, take a list of, you know, characteristics, symptoms, and come up with a a probable diagnosis for what might be wrong as far as Hmm. uh, insomnia goes. Thanks for the call. So So it's not like analyzing a retina or something. It's more like...
Yeah. Uh, Eric? Yeah, I think this is where uh, we've seen good evidence that when patients put in their list of symptoms, lab tests, you know, any findings that they have uh, to chat GPT or even better, GPT-4, they may get very meaningful uh, output of what's going on. I mean, we've seen it, of course, um, in, in anecdotes, but they're striking, like the boy who went three years where his mother took him to 17 different doctors, and he had progressive worsening of his of his gait and horrible pain and growth arrest. And then his mother, when, he, when she entered the symptoms, got the diagnosis of occult spina bifida, a tethered spinal hmm. cord, which was released by a neurosurgeon in Michigan, and he did much better. So, you know, if you, Jeff, if you put all your symptoms and any tests that you have into ChatGPT, you, you might get something that's useful. It'll just keep getting better over time. In fact, you, you mentioned in a recent TED Talk, uh, you told the story of a patient who had trouble getting the proper diagnosis until their parent uh, turned to ChatGPT and imported their symptoms and it worked, right? Yeah, there's so many cases that are emerging like that, Ira. I mean, I, a, a patient of mine whose uh, sister had the diagnosis of long COVID, saw many neurologists over many months, and t was told there's no treatment. And then when she, the, the, the person I know, put in the symptoms in the lab tests, they came out with a diagnosis of limbic encephalitis, which is treatable. And the patient was treated and is doing, you know, exceptionally well. So, you know, this is a kind of a second opinion. Uh, you, you made the point uh, that, of course, it can generate mistakes. But also, you know, we have the doctors that can overlook this human in the loop thing. So it's something that's useful to bounce uh, an idea off. Uh, and it's just going to be uh, more accurate as we go forward. Well, I have a story that's sort of the opposite thing. A friend of mine likes to use ChatGPT, and he his daughter was ill, and he entered some of her symptoms, and it diagnosed her with appendicitis. So he rushed her to the doctor, and it turns out she was completely fine. So mm. for, for parents or for people who are entering their own systems, how reliable should they consider ChatGPT as a diagnostic tool? Yeah, I'm really glad you made that point. Errors can be made, but you know what's really important to put in context is that we make a lot of errors without AI. You know, in fact, a recent Johns Hopkins study showed that there are 800,000 people with getting medical diagnostic errors who are severely disabled or die. Wow. And that's without AI per year. So yes, it's true. AI, but it, you know, when we get studies that are going to look at this at scale, it'll be interesting to see uh, how many mistakes are made. The good part is we got the wisdom and experience of clinicians to oversee um, the, yeah. the results of the AI. But the, don't underestimate how many errors are being made today uh, without AI. So that's something to keep in mind. Interesting. Let's go to the phones to uh, Connecticut. Jeannie in Connecticut. Hi. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Go, go ahead. I'm a big bit of... Um, <laughs> Dr. Topol, thank you for joining today. My question for you is about whether or not AI could be used in the creation of monoclonal antibodies, like to prevent COVID, because like Evashield fell you know, out of effectiveness because the variant changed. Could AI be used to you know, create monoclonal antibodies to prevent COVID on a much more rapid scale? 
And if it would be effective in that, could it, they also be used for asthma, allergies? Like, does AI have a role in the creation of those? Good question. Thanks for calling. We'll let you s- s- drive safely. <laughs> Right. So that it's a really important area, which is drug discovery, which is a you know very hot uh, topic because recently uh, a group in Boston, for the first time uh, in 38 years, used AI to discover a new structural class of antibiotics, with antibiotics that were effective against staph aureus that are resistant to uh, current antibiotics. So the point that's being made about COVID. Uh, there's already been AI work to show that you could come up with uh, pan-coronavirus antibodies that uh, bind to key sites uh, that are in the virus. And so right now, of course, we don't have an antibody that's effective against the current variants. uh, And this is going to be a segue to having those sort of antibodies. So across the board, whether it's antibodies, small molecules, Mm. um, you know, we're going to see a lot of acceleration in drug discovery. It's not going to happen so much overnight, but over the next few years, you'll see the difference. Francois in Texas. Hi, welcome. Are you there, Francis? Francois? Oh, oh, Francois, yes. So um, I wonder if there's any particular field of medicine, like cardiology or gastroenterology, that is currently better served by AI than others. Mm. You're talking to a cardiologist, so let's see what he says. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. um, The 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 subspecialties that have really been leading the charge. uh, Yeah, I mentioned the ophthalmologist with the retina. Uh, the gastroenterologists, there have been 33 randomized trials to have machine vision during the colonoscopy. And the pickup rate of polyps, adenomatous polyps, is substantially higher. So that one is on the brink of becoming, hopefully, um, the way we move forward uh, so we don't miss the small and important polyps at colonoscopy. But, you know, it's affecting every type of uh, clinical practice over time. I mean, this is not something that's only radiologists, pathologists, uh, and certain uh, clinicians, but it, it, it's starting to have an effect uh, across the board. Programs like ChatGPT, they are trained on publicly available information and on past data. And sometimes that data has a lot of bias within it. Could we be replicating that same bias by relying on these AI programs for diagnoses? Yeah, this is another key point, which is since the inputs are all human content and we have all sorts of embedded biases in that content, that will be reflected in the output too. So that's why we have to be on guard and interrogate the input data and the model for propagating or amplifying bias. And this is something that can't get enough emphasis We have to do much better. We've seen so many examples of uh, biased AI models. Uh, And now that we're into this multimodal model uh, phase where these transformer models that are are really enabling uh, chat GPT and these advanced large language model chatbots, that potential can even be worse. And it's it's a very serious limitation that we have to deal with. Do you have any suggestions on how to make it better? And taking the bias out. Well, I, I, I wish we didn't have such deep biases in our human content. But since that's the basis, uh, that's what has to be, you know, of course, it'll be helped, Ira, if the uh, input is based on multi-ancestry data, 
mm. not just you know a, a emphasis on you know European ancestry, for example. That's going to help, but it has to be. You know, you see, now the data is not supervised anymore. It's unsupervised, self-supervised. So with that, there has to be an increased uh, attention, tight surveillance of what's going in, and and that should help weed out or reduce the uh, the magnitude of the bias. Is there enough data to, to do that? Very, very data. Yeah. Yes, the, the, the problem we have right now is that the major models um, that are used today, like the ones we've been talking about, were not ever medically trained. Mm. They're just trained on you know everything that's out there in the internet and books and Wikipedia. And so we need fine tuning. Uh, um, and of course, there hasn't been much of that, but there was a fascinating preprint published just a few days ago uh, from Google using one of their uh, models, which compared 20 primary care doctors, uh, you know, versus uh, patients and had amazingly improved outcomes uh, on the uh, AI. So oh. we're, we'll see that when it's trained medically. Let's go to Maria in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Hi there. Welcome to Science Friday. Well, thank you. Welcome to you, too. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. Okay. So um, I accompanied a, a good friend for a sort of an emergency mammograph after a doctor's visit, given some symptoms and what the um, the physician had um, had noticed. So I accompanied her because clearly that was uh, the stress level. Her stress level was very high. I said, oh, I'll come along with you. We'll have lunch, blah, blah, blah. So we get there. And at the desk, um, paperwork, it's the usual paperwork. And, and then she was offered an option to have an additional read beyond the human eyes of the physician of, by AI. And indeed, the, the cost was $40. And I didn't say anything because she had enough stress and she didn't need me questioning her, right. <laughs> her uh, decision. Um, but it made me very concerned. First of all, if someone is doing research and is um, for a product and see, and a patient is being asked to participate, they should be paying you. You shouldn't be paying them. I'm with you on but that. <laughs> I say, yeah, I didn't say anything. But then it made me, it kept me thinking, where is that information going? Because the release that she paid, that she write, it's designed, didn't say anything about the security of that information is this going to be somewhere that an insurance company somewhere down the line regardless of you know depending regardless right. of what the outcome of the read was is going to have access to that and what are the implications of that good question good question yeah i'm glad i'm glad you went along with her so you could ask this question dr, dr. <laughs> topol yes well maria is spot on about that concern uh you know the way we have treated health data until now there's all sorts of data brokers and data and, and breaches of data. So this is something that has to be protected. So it adds on to the insult of charging a patient to use AI that isn't uh, proven to be of value and then to be concerned that what's going to happen to that data. So I share uh, Maria's uh, point. It's, it's something that has to be addressed. That's why there's lots of loose ends here. Maria, I hope that answers your question. Right. I just have one more question. Is, is this group, your uh, your guest, 
where would one start the query or the or the questions from the legal, political, uh, legislative aspect of this? Who should be concerned about this? Is it our senators and, and um, representatives? Does it start at the state level or just everywhere? And you know, send that email to everybody. Like, Good. what are you guys doing about Good this? Good question, <laughs> Maria. Good question. What do you think, Dr. Topol? Who, who do we get involved in this? The best, the easiest, the fastest way. Well, we have not done a good job, Ira, as you know, uh, for protecting our health data. And we have, most Americans have had that breached, uh, and even perhaps more than once. So part of the problem is, if we want to get this right, people should own their data, their, all their health data. And it shouldn't be sitting on servers that can be um, hacked and have their health systems hijacked, uh, ransomware, all sorts of things that have happened in you know, breaches. So. We have to do much better to protect. And this is not just an AI problem. Mm -hmm. This is a general deep problem in this country. Mm -hmm. On the pro-AI side, uh, there was a recent study from Google that suggested AI chatbots actually showed more compassion to patients than doctors did. I mean, doctors can't be pleased by this, can they? <laughs> How, how well, hard Sophie, is that to uh, do? <laughs> you know, th this was a shocker to me. And I yeah. was a doubting Thomas on this but when the first study came out last year. But the most recent studies have, have really reinforced it. And what's going on here is, as you know, machines don't know what empathy is, but they can promote it greatly. And so what's amazing is now that the notes are getting automated uh, through this process of uh, AI, uh, they, they can train, coach the doctors, say, why did you interrupt Mrs. Jones after eight seconds? Why didn't you ask her about, you know, this concern or that? And so the, the human content that's being used to train the AI is in turn directly promoting empathy. And I wouldn't be surprised in the years ahead that all doctors will have to go through coaching by an AI wow. to be more compassionate, be more empathetic. Who would ever have guessed Ooh, yeah. that? I had thought we would get more empathetic by having more time with patients, right. having direct face, you know, FaceTime, but I didn't anticipate this. And it's getting replicated several times now through multiple different groups. Oh, this is this is a movie coming out. Let's, <laughs> well, you actually, you mentioned something about having the AI take care of the notes so the doctor's not doing it. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, this is starting to spread like wildfire in a good way, because, as you know, the worst thing for clinicians is spending hours as a data clerk. That's not why we went into this. We went into it to care for patients, and this detracts from it, and it's just something that was never envisioned to be such a, uh, a major dominant part of medical practice. But what we're seeing now is that that conversation between a patient and doctor can be uh, automated, digitized, and a note that's better than anything in our charts today. But more importantly, not just the note, which can be put in any level of education, any cultural language, whatever, for the patient with the audio file, if there's any confusion or forgetting what was discussed during the visit. But then that can drive all the data clerk work 
so that the keyboard liberation movement is on right now, wow. taking care of pre-authorization, uh, follow-up appointments, lab tests, procedures, prescriptions, uh, nudging the patient subsequently for, uh, did, did you check your blood pressure? Are you going on these walks? Or whatever that was being discussed during the visit. So this is a very welcome change and will quickly, in the next couple of years, be, I think, widespread throughout the practice of medicine. Good to know. that. Who, who would have thunk? Uh, let's go to Levittown, PA. Caitlin, hi. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi. Good afternoon. Um, so my question was, um, I'm, a, I'm a mental health therapist in New Jersey, and I work with a lot of clients um, who have needs that might not be met, and um, their, their families or their friends or people around them might not necessarily understand all of those needs. So coming in um, to see me, I'm wondering um, if there's any way for um, the AI to essentially put out a disclaimer almost to these potential families, patients, that they really need to talk with a mental health professional or a clinician to make these diagnoses because otherwise we might end up with situations where um, people could just have, you know, a need that isn't being met. And instead, because they're raising some concern about it, misunderstandings could lead to misdiagnoses such as oppositional defiance disorder or something like that. So how do we how do we prevent some of those biases or how do we prevent some of these misunderstandings when inherently as human beings it's hard to understand what our biases are sometimes and hard to recognize that and therefore hard to make that not a part of our software. Hmm. Yeah, we talked about that a bit, Dr. Topol, but what about, th thanks for the call. Uh, what about that? Uh, can can AI recommend to the, the families to, you know, treat the patient better or how to treat the patient better or understand the patient? Yes. I mean, I think what's being touched on here is that we have such inadequate support from psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors for mental health issues. And so we need help, but trying to find the right balance, uh, as the questioner put forth, is is tricky. And yet, you know, we have these chatbots that are trying to um, help manage anxiety, depression, certain, you know, parts of mental health. But, you know, this still is in the early stages of validation. Mm -hmm. uh, there's small randomized trials. But whether it will do what you're asking, Ira, remains to be seen. Hopefully we, it will because we have such a terrible mismatch of professional help versus need. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's go uh, to the phones to Mike in Northern Wisconsin. Hi, Mike. Hi. That's a real nice segue into the comment question that I have for the uh, for the guests. Uh, you know, I it's my argument that we are overselling the artificial intelligence uh, terminology idea. You know, I argue that a lot of the things that we've talked about today. And a lot of the advancements that are being labeled as AI are actually incremental advancements in techniques and technologies that were thought up by humans, advanced by humans, but with the advancement of computing power and humans that are going in and better organizing how the data is organized and what tools are being applied, that we're getting some increasement and, and it's valuable increasing knowledge 
But as far as artificial intelligence, where a computer scheme is being put together to come up with a completely new, novel, unique idea, I would argue that there is very little of that that we've seen yet. And, I, you know, I, I use the example of the, uh, you know, design of experiments, which I'm sure your guest is very well aware of, is applying computing power in ever-increasing amounts with an ever-increasing amount of data to be able to do what essentially scientists were doing 100 years ago uh, is not the same thing as artificial intelligence where the machines are thinking of new ways that were never thought of by humans to do something. Let me get back to Topol's reaction. Well, I mean, there's some uh, elements of what you're bringing up that I agree, and that is we're seeing massive computing power. I mean, the, the base models like uh, GPT-4, the prototype, has uh, over 24,000 graphic processing units uh, that are being used. So a massive computing power, and it's a, a trillion connections, as opposed to our brain that has 100 trillion connections. But it isn't just that. I mean, the transformer model, which in recent times, like the, the, led to ChatGPT, GPT-4, Gemini, and so many other models. This is something that is AI. It's the real deal. It isn't just computing power and, and ingestion of massive content. It isn't just a stochastic parrot. It is truly the most advanced form. And that's why there's so much fear about artificial general intelligence emerging and companies that are making that their target, which is having every task of a human being uh, being con uh, performed as well or better uh, by an AI. So, no, I don't agree with the point that this is just human stuff and higher computing power. There's another very vital component added, component added to that. I mean, the, all these definitions are areas of contention with people disagreeing over what exactly they mean by artificial general intelligence and, yes, by AI as well. But I, I'd kind of like to, to change the topic a sec and go back to doctors and AI. I, I was wondering if there's a tension between the use of these programs and between doctors who might not want to cede authority to AI. I'm thinking about how uh, the doctor might get upset with you if you tell them you've Googled your symptoms and they tell you not to use Dr. Google. Right. Well, Sophie, there's a history of that with Google uh, and also with people bringing in their data from whatever source and the reluctance of many physicians to really take that seriously. Uh, but that's going to get amped up now because now that these chatbots are going to be widely available, we're going to see, uh, you know, a different look where, you know, you have this extensive conversation and you get uh, outputs and you say, I'm going to the, my doctor to ask about this. So uh, it is a challenge to physicians. That is uh, seating authority, not having, you know, total control, as has been the case for, you know, a couple of millennia. Uh, and so this is just another version of that, which is perhaps even more uh, of a of a challenge, and but that's this is the future, is what you're saying. Get used to it. Yeah, I think what we have to you know everything has its benefits and risks. But if you just think about what we've been discussing with respect to alleviation of being a data clerk 
and getting a second opinion, you know, eventually we're going to have models that have the entire corpus of the medical literature and knowledge in up to the moment. And we can't, no human, no, no doctor can have that kind of information at their fingertips. Um, so this is where we're headed. And it is, it is, a, it's a one way path, you know, and mm -hmm. I think the net benefit, but we have been discussing many of the liabilities too. Yeah. Uh, well, we, that's about all the time we have sort of run out this hour. Will you come back, Dr. Topol, and we can get into that other discussion? Absolutely. I love the conversation with you and Sophie. It's been fun. That's it. Uh, and that's about all the time we have this hour. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Eric Topol, founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. He's professor of molecular medicine, executive vice president of, of Scripps Research based in La Jolla, California.